I am so grateful to be with you face to face. The last time my wife and I were visiting the city was March 15th, 2020. And if you know what happened that weekend, the whole world changed and you guys had to cancel your gathering and we had to hightail it back to Boston. And so it is so good for us to be together. I'm so grateful to be with you. I have many friends in this room and my family, we watch your services online quite a bit. We love your church and we feel loved by your church a lot. So thank you. Um, I'm gonna read today's passage. Um, and it's taken from Mark chapter 4, verse 35, and I'm going to read through verse 41, and then I'm going to pause, and we're going to take a moment to be silent and still to ask the Spirit how he might want to speak to us. Mark chapter 4 and verse 35. That day, when evening came, his disciples said, he said to his disciples, let us go to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious storm came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. And he said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no trust? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? <laughs> Even the wind and the waves obey him. Let's take a moment to invite the Spirit to speak to us now. How might the Spirit of God want to speak to you in your fear, concerns, worries that you had yesterday? I invite you to say something like, speak, Lord. Your child is listening. Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on us. We give you our time, our mind, and our lives now. In the name of the Father, and Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. I'm very grateful to kick off this series with you on overcoming fear. Because whether we realize it or not, fear impacts everything we do. It affects the conversations that we have or don't have. It affects the trajectory of our careers. It affects... Um, a lot of ways, the ways that we care for others generously or not. It affects the quality of our life and of our faith. Fear has been a topic of special interest for me this past year. Starting a business and moving my family across the country after eight years living in the East Coast has given me a lot of motivation to do that, to deep dive on this topic of fear. But I could also give you countless examples, not just of my personal life, but professionally as well. How I see this showing up in the workplace. For example, in the industry that I work in, many executives and leaders are um, 
operating from a deep, unrecognized core fear. Suffering is reported to be at an all-time high. I read this past week in a, an article in The Atlantic that cited two sources that said, uh, according to the American Psychological Association, the average American who reports that fear has increased has increased by 20% between 2017 and 2020. The average person who says, I have had much or significant worry or stress yesterday has increased by 10%. There's a lot of suffering in the world in which I work. And it's usually some deep-seated fear or early trauma that's causing the person to either dominate, to manipulate, or to abdicate in the workplace once they're triggered. Conversely, some of the most effective leaders that I've worked with are those who have developed the ability to recognize a personal fear, one that's fueling ineffective behavior, harness it, and lead through it. That's because the first mark of a conscious leader or a conscious disciple is the ability to tell yourself the truth, Amen. to be honest with yourself of what's happening. And I believe that's why Jesus asked his disciples this seemingly absurd question in verse 40. Why are you so afraid? It seemed absurd because, well, why wouldn't we be so afraid? Like, we're in a tiny boat, we're being tossed around in the middle of the ocean in a furious storm. My translation says squall, I have no idea what that is. And in the ancient world, the ocean represented everything that was chaotic. Their world is literally crashing down, and Jesus is asleep, seemingly doing nothing, and then wakes up, calms it, and almost annoyingly asks, hey, why are you so afraid? I mean, I kind of get it. I love a good, quest a good question. I make my living asking good questions or trying to find good questions. My daughters just don't love my good questions. <laughs> uh, this past week, one of my daughters, she had a hard day at school. And um, she's a teenage, well, I have a couple of teenage daughters. And uh, she wanted to take the dog for a walk. But it was getting toward the evening time, and she was a little bit scared to go out on her own. And so I said, well, I'll go with you. And she said, nah. <laughs> and I was like, wait, why don't you want me to come with you? Like, your choice is between either getting out and going or me coming and you say no? And she said, well, because you're going to ask me some deep question. <laughs> so if you come with me, you can't ask me anything like, how do I feel about climate change? <laughs> or what's my thoughts on Greta Thunberg? And then she tried to get really smart and said, or do I believe in the respiratory system? And that's when my other question came out, like, why am I paying for private school? Like, <laughs> respiratory system? You have to believe in that. <laughs> I love a good question. I just don't love this question. Not initially. It seems absurd to me, unreasonable, unless unless Jesus is doing something bigger, unless 
Jesus is actually freeing his friends from something deep inside of them that is kind of a strange enslavement that they're not familiar with, that they're not always aware of, unless the question, is Jesus talking to his disciples and taking them on a journey to help them redefine their relationship with fear? You see, fear is not the problem. In fact, your brain was spectacularly wired and designed to detect fear. That little part of your brain called the amygdala, amygdala, the little uh, almond-shaped part of your brain was put there to scan the environment, to detect threat, so that you can run from oncoming traffic or run from the saber-toothed tiger. or run from an abusive situation. Fear is not the problem. The problem is that in effort to overcome fear, we often try to fight it with the wrong weapons. Or we deny it. Why? Because we're ashamed. We don't want to be afraid. And then we're Christians and we're told, do not fear or fear not. And people are like, it's in there for like 365 times. One for every time of the day of the week. And you're like, or the year. Um, I didn't go to private school either, obviously. (laughs) And we're like, well, I shouldn't be afraid. So it's not there. But the truth is we are afraid. The problem, friends, is that we try to fight fear when in actuality, Mike Tyson says, fear is your friend. (laughs) The great Mike Tyson, fear is your friend. We don't overcome fear by fighting it. We overcome fear by making friends with it. I'm going to show you how in a moment. Jesus is calling us into a journey to redefine our relationship with fear. But beware, if you're going to take this journey... It'll take you through some thresholds, two thresholds that I see in this story. One is an invitation. The other is confrontation. First, we see the invitation in verse 35. That day, when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us cross over to the other side of the sea. And leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. The phrase that day tells us that Something significant happened in that moment, on that day. If you were one of the disciples living in Roman-occupied territory, you would have spent, quote, that day on the shore, listening to some of the most countercultural words from a Jewish rabbi, a carpenter named Jesus, talking about something called the kingdom of God, the rule of God as it breaks into the world. You would have seen Jesus climb into a boat. Maybe it's yours and teach the large crowd from the water, using it for amplification. You would have heard the excitement or the cynics in the crowd eagerly responding to Jesus' parables about God's shalom and justice spreading into the world because he's entered into it. And you might even have felt a sense of pride welling up, like, I'm with him. Maybe you, heard, you felt fulfillment, like, I just heard a sermon and I feel filled up kind of similar to what we feel when we enter into a church setting sometimes. But then Jesus does something unexpected as he does for his followers. He separates the followers from the fans with an invitation. And he says, all right, guys, let's go over to the other side. 
it's an uncomfortable invitation. Because if you're one of the disciples, you know that on the other side, crossing over means crossing over into a Gentile region. You're crossing the tracks. It's a place divided by race and ethnicity and social status. And Jesus is crossing the tracks to liberate a community from the fear that segregates and separates all of them. On the other side, though, is also a danger that you don't know about. Awaiting you on the other side is a spiritual conflict. It's a man who's been possessed by demonic forces and isolated for several years in need of, desperate need of freedom and liberation. And to get to the other side, you're going to have to experience rough waters, a storm that will threaten to drown you, sink you, overwhelm you. The invitation to cross over is not just about transportation in the story, it's about liberation. Jesus is heading there to free a man of evil that has enslaved him, to free a segregated community, but it's not just the people on the other side that Jesus wants to set free, it's the people on the inside. His friends that he's traveling there with, he's interested in freeing you and them and us, his fellow travelers, from the very thing that enslaves them, fear. He's inviting them to cross over from fear into ruthless trust. But that will require something different from him, from them. It says in verse 36, so they left, quote, the crowd, and they took Jesus in the boat. The crowd in Mark's gospel is often used in a pejorative way. It's the fans. It's those people that for them, Jesus is a great addition to life. But Jesus is calling them to leave the crowd because Jesus wants to be his disciples' life. Everyone got instruction that day. Everyone's getting instruction this day, but some got an invitation into something deeper, action. It takes action to activate trust, and that's when Jesus turns to his disciples and said, let's go over to the other side. I want to invite you in this moment to pause and ask Jesus where he might be inviting you to cross over to some other side today. What is the other side? Is it leaving worry, fear, and entering into trust? What do you fear that awaits you on the other side? How is God leading you from fear and into ruthless trust? To make it across, Jesus then helps his followers reach a second threshold. That's confrontation in verse 37. What do I mean by confrontation? See, in order to redefine my relationship with fear, my limited view of God has to continually be confronted. I have a small view. Understanding is limited. And God seems to use rough waters to confront my limited imagination. There's two qualities to Jesus' character that confront my view of God. The first one is the good shepherd confronts my view of God's care. Look at verse 37. A furious storm came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him up and said, teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up and he rebuked 
the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. And then the wind died down and it was completely calm. When was the last time that you asked that question? Jesus, don't you care that we're perishing? If you've never asked that question, either you haven't been a Christian very long or you're in a state of denial. I remember sitting with my spiritual director in Boston. It was in July of this last year. We had to be out of our apartment in Boston by the end of the month. We had been praying and preparing to leave Boston after eight years so that we could be back near family again in California. Uh, It was time for us, and we left as well as you can leave. It was great, but we didn't know where we were going to go, and we had like 20-something days left to figure it out. And I sat with my spiritual director in the middle of a pandemic, and he said, what do you most resonate with in terms of scripture right now? And I said, that passage where the disciples are asking, don't you care if we're perishing? It was a little bit dramatic, but I felt it was what I was feeling in the moment. <laughs> we never redefine fear by pretending it's not there. And my spiritual director's response was memorable. He said, Al, do you ever notice that in your imagined future, God is rarely there? It's not something I'm proud of. But honesty is a necessary part of my growth, and yours too. Many evangelicals think of conversion as being saved, that prayer that you said so that you can be free from hell. But I think there's a bigger concept, a broader understanding of conversion, of salvation, and that is I'm continually being converted or saved from my limited understanding of God. How does Jesus confront their small view of God's care? By reminding them, I am the good shepherd. You remember David's words in Psalm 23? He makes me lie down in green pastures and he leads me beside still waters. In this scene, Jesus is calming the waters that they see as chaotic. Jesus brings calm to their rough waters with his words, and he, his awakened presence actually causes them to take great comfort. We need constant input of Jesus' words to help our minds and our understanding and our imagination become broader again of who God really is and will often be met by rough waters when we're trying to cross over. The second thing that Jesus shows us that confronts our limited view of God is the wonderful counselor confronts my illusion of control. Verse 40, he said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no trust? And now we come to the question that we started with about fear. Jesus is acting as the wonderful counselor, and he asks them two questions. The first is, why are you so afraid? What is fear? I think a great definition is, fear is what happens when I'm visualizing a future event that hasn't happened, and it's impacting how I think and feel in the present. Or if you want to put it in an acronym, fear 
It's false expectations appearing real. Al, in your imagined future, God is rarely there. Their acute fear isn't the problem. It's their chronic fear. It's that low-grade sense that's living in the body, that's constantly there, that they're unaware of, that they don't want to admit. And Jesus doesn't say, don't be afraid. There's many places in Scripture where it says, fear not, but this isn't one of them. Why? This is a pivotal moment in their formation. He asks them a question. The quality of our answers are determined by the quality of our questions. And he asked them a great question. Tell me why you're so afraid. We started by saying fear impacts everything we do. And I said that I could give you a bunch of examples from the workplace, professional examples. But I think I'm just going to give you a personal example from my own life, how it's impacted me recently. Last week, I had to apologize to my family. I came downstairs, and um, there was some things happening downstairs. This is normal family stuff. All my kids were on devices, and, and immediately it just triggered something in me, like, I'm a terrible parent. So immediately I started trying to take control. I said to my oldest, like, when are you going to get your job? And the middle one, like, how come you're not reading more? And to the youngest, I can't even remember what I said to her. Why are you watching YouTube? And then I got a warning look from my wife, and then I accused her of coddling our kids. <laughs> hey, real talk, man, right? How, how do you think that energy in the room was after that? <laughs> Sucked all the air right out of it. Everyone was silent. And then I feel guilty and ashamed, but now I'm angry. And so I went upstairs. And I just laid out on the floor. You can often follow the source of your fear by asking yourself a few questions. What am I afraid of losing? What am I trying to hide? What am I trying to prove? Our amygdala isn't just scanning the environment for physical threat, it's also scanning the environment for emotional threat, right? Anything that's a threat to my security, approval, or control. And so, as I got quiet, I could feel the fear in my body, in the pit of my stomach. I was afraid of summer coming and us not having a schedule and spending the summer managing screen time, which is real, but I was mostly afraid that I wasn't providing my kids what they needed to thrive in life. I was feeling and fearing like I'm a terrible dad. So I came downstairs, and I sensed in that moment, what's the, most, what's the courageous thing to do? So I went downstairs, and I, I said, hey, guys, I just have to ask for your forgiveness. I sucked the energy out of the room. I started accusing you, trying to overly control. And I started thinking about summer, and I got scared. Now, mind you, we moved from Boston because winters took a toll on us after a while, particularly me. I was just done with snow, man. <laughs> and so when I told my family, hey, I thought about the summer and I got scared, my 10-year-old, my youngest, said, I thought winter scared you. <laughs> That's when I said, well, when are you getting a job? No. <laughs> 
the wonderful counselor asks the second question, do you still have no trust? It's not that these disciples shouldn't be afraid in times of acute danger. It's that they've misplaced their trust. Jesus had told them, we're crossing over to the other side. And when it appears that they're not going to make it, and they're able to be honest with themselves and with God, what they're really trusting in is revealed. When Jesus invites them to cross over, he's inviting them to cross over from casual faith to what Brennan Manning calls ruthless trust. And he says this word ruthless on purpose because he says ruthless means without pity and particularly without self-pity. And I appreciate that in his book, Ruthless Trust, he acknowledges that there's a lot of things that knock us off our trust, right? There's a lot of pain in the world and evil that make trust difficult. But then he calls us readers into something despite our circumstances, He suggests that gratitude is the prerequisite for trust, and grateful trust becomes the antidote to self-hatred and self-pity, because the trust he proclaims is so complete, so perfect, he calls it ruthless. When things seem out of control, I can often believe life is happening to me rather than God working all things for me. I can easily fall into a victim mentality And there are things outside of my control and things inside of my control, and I can only control the things that are in there, my mind and my actions, today. But I can choose to trust God for the outcome of all the things that are out of my control, or I can fear. Which do you choose? Our fear can be our friend in that point. Because it can help me understand more deeply if I invite fear to the table and say, What am I really trusting in for my security, approval, and control? The wonderful counselor, Jesus, asked me, son, do you still have no faith? These words from Jesus calling recently stood out to me regarding this. Listen to them as though they're coming from Jesus. I invite you to close your eyes even. You see, it's not so much adverse events that make you anxious as it is your thoughts about those events Your mind engages in efforts to take control of a situation, to bring about the result that you desire. Your thoughts close in on your problem like ravenous wolves and determined to make things go your way. You forget that I am in charge of your life. The only remedy is to switch your focus from the problem to my presence. In the Psalms, they talk about some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, the resources around them. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Jesus spoke a parable about people who were very religious and righteous, and when they failed, they were so self-condemning because he said they trusted in themselves. We need courage for ruthless trust. Where can we gain such courage? How do we redefine our relationship with fear? I'm going to close with three ways that Jesus shows us. The first is in verse 36. We can gain support from other boats. It said, leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was, and there were other boats with him. It's a line that's often overlooked in the story, and it's something that we often overlook in our story as well, is that when you look in this room, there's other boats who are facing serious storms as well. 
and in life. We're meant to travel with other people. And sometimes it greatly connects, you know, I share fears that I'm facing with your pastor, Dave, all the time. There's other boats that can identify and travel these rough waters with us, and we need others. The problem is that oftentimes in our own isolation or our own fear of being known, we isolate. We don't really want people to know because we're scared. It's fear. Or we insulate. Fear causes us to move from curiosity of how others think or uh, live their life into the need to be right and only associate with the people in our boat. Only the, only the conservatives. Only the progressives. It's fear. Love is the medicine for fear. Second, the way that we can find courage to travel through these rough waters is that we can answer the question, why are you so afraid? Where is your trust? We said that the first mark of a conscious leader or a conscious disciple is their willingness to tell themselves the truth. Okay, why am I so scared right now? To sit with Jesus' question and think of the situation that's triggering an unresourceful behavior, withdrawal, unprocessed anger, numbing myself, medicating, self-pity, and ask, what am I afraid of losing? What am I trying to hide? What am I trying to prove? And share that with Jesus and ask the Holy Spirit to begin to bring peace and healing. Bring other people, other boats into it. And then thirdly and lastly, we can refocus our fear. It says in verse 41, they were terrified. First they're afraid, don't you care? Then Jesus calms the storm, then they're more afraid. And they ask each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Why are they terrified? They've refocused, they've reframed their fear onto someone greater than their fears. In Hebrew scripture, Yahweh was the one who controlled the deep, the waters in Genesis 1. And when they experience the presence of Jesus, they feel overwhelmed by his power and glory. You see, worship reaches a crescendo when you sense your smallness in the presence of eternal greatness. And there's two basic reasons we get afraid. Number one is we're afraid that we're not enough. And number two, closely associated, because we're not enough, we're afraid that we're not going to be loved. And this shows us, I don't have to be afraid that I'm not enough because Jesus fully is. Yahweh was the one who parted the sea, whose spirit hovered over the chaotic ocean. He was the one who sat enthroned at the flood and sat as king forever. And here is Jesus commanding the chaos to be still. And because they see the wind and the waves obey him, trust him, it gives them courage as well to do the same. They're witnessing the dual nature of Jesus. In his humanity, he sleeps. In his divinity, he speaks to the wind and the waves and calms the chaos. And since Jesus has put skin on, the question is no longer, is Jesus God-like? But what I really want to know is, is God Jesus-like? Will he care for me like a good shepherd does? 
Will he come to me like a wonderful counselor when I'm deeply afraid? Brennan Manning says, if the night is bad and our nerves are shattered and darkness comes and pain is all around and the Holy One seems absent and we want to know God's true feelings toward us, we must turn and look at Jesus. Why? Because it says in Scripture that perfect love casts out all fear. Because Jesus is enough, I don't have to be afraid that I won't be fully loved. It's what transformed the Apostle John from being a hot-tempered man to the Apostle of love saying, we ourselves have known and put our trust in God's love toward ourselves. When we remind ourselves of Jesus' ruthless love, his ruthless trust, it inspires me to want to cross over oceans and climb mountains. Brendan Manning again says, our trust in Jesus grows as we shift from making self-conscious efforts to be good to allowing ourselves to be loved as we are and not as we should be. Trust is our gift back to God, and he finds it so enchanting that Jesus died for love of it. We need, as Paul Tillett said, the childlike courage to accept our acceptance. See, fear is a malady, and love is the remedy. The article I read in The Atlantic, the title was, Love is Medicine for Fear. And I thought about that article when I went upstairs after I felt I sucked out the energy and tried to over-control my family. And I went upstairs and I lay there, and the, the phrase, love is medicine for fear, entered into my mind. And I thought, I, the question popped into my, into my mind, what is it that I would most want right now? Like, I'm really in the moment. You know, you know those moments, you know you're in the wrong. And I just, I can either hold on to this anger, or I can ask, what is it that I most want? And I thought, you know what I would most want? Love is medicine for fear. I would most want someone to come and put their arm around me and say, you know, you're a good dad. And your kids love you. And you're, you're doing a great job. You're working it as best you can. You just got scared. You got scared and you allowed what you're typically trusting in, your ability to be this great thing or do that or have all things together, and it was out of control, and you trusted in yourself. And you realize you're not enough, but I love you. And what would be the most courageous thing for us to do right now to make this right? And you know what? No one came and did that for me. <laughs> which I'm grateful for. Do you know why? Because in the moment, I sensed in my soul a voice saying, I want to be that for you. I want to be the one who comes and brings love for your medicine for your fear. Instead of trying to fight fear, focus on trusting me. What if you could redefine your relationship with fear today? What would look different in your life? How would you be different? What would you do different? Let's take a moment now to ask Jesus that. I have included a fear inventory for you to take. It's one of the great gifts, you know, given to us by uh, the sobriety community. And in that inventory, you're able to download it. 
on a magical website <laughs> that I don't know about right now. And it's going to ask you three, give you three categories. One on the left, you're going to write down your fear. And in the middle, you're going to write down, is there anything that I can do about this right now? And on the right, you're going to write down, okay, where am, where can, am I being called to trust you, God, in this? I invite you to do that today. So as we close, I want to invite uh, our worship team up. And right now, I'd like for you to be still. Close your eyes. You're in the boat with Jesus right now. You've just launched out. You see Jesus sleeping there. His humanity is so real. The waves start to crash. The water starts to fill your tiny boat. And he seems to be doing nothing. What are the waves that are causing you to feel as though you're drowning right now? Name those to Jesus in this moment. You watch Jesus' ability to speak calm to the most extreme chaos, and he, then he looks at you with eyes of love and compassion. You sense he wants something so much more for you, and yet he'll always be with you and never forsake you, even in your fear. And he asks you, why are you so afraid? What are you willing to tell him now? Ask yourself, what is it that I'm afraid of losing? What am I trying to hide or trying to prove? And then he asks you, are you willing to trust me? What's your answer to him? Let's be with him now, just in that moment.